this reconnaissance fire, reconnaissance strike contour is the main defining element today of the war in Ukraine. Both by the Ukrainians who were very successful in integrating drones with their artillery strikes, as well as the Russians. And the question is whether Russian bureaucracy, which already understands, for example, the significance and the importance of using commercial quadcopters, whether this bureaucracy would be able to get out of its own way. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, editorial director at MWI. And on this episode, we're exploring innovation. Specifically, we're assessing how well both Ukraine and Russia are adapting technologically and tactically when it comes to the ways they use unmanned aerial vehicles, drones on the battlefield. To do so, I'm joined by Sam Bendett. He is an advisor at CNA's Strategy, Policy, Plans and Program Center and a member of CNA's Russia Studies Program. His extensive research experience and his focus on Russian defense technology and on unmanned systems, among other subjects, make him the perfect person to address some really important questions. To what extent are Ukrainian and Russian forces actively innovating in the ways they use drone technology? How do those innovation efforts on both sides compare with one another? And what effect has all of this had on battlefield outcomes? It is a fascinating conversation, but before we get to it, as always, a couple quick notes. First, if you're not yet subscribed to the MWI podcast, you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or any other app. And if you're enjoying it, please give it a rating or leave a review. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Sam Bendet. Hey, Sam, thank you so much for coming on the MWI podcast. Thank you. So we are going to talk today about innovation in the war in Ukraine. And I think the area where that innovation is most visible is uh, with respect to drone technology and, and perhaps even more so in, in you know, drone employment. Um, and in this area in particular, I think Ukraine has, has probably earned the bulk of the, you know, the plaudits um, for the ways it has adapted its tactics and, and, and improvised with equipment. Um, you know, to say that Ukraine has been extraordinarily innovative and Russia just hasn't been, though, I think even if it's somewhat true, that sort of misses some of the nuance that um, I hope we can kind of dig down into uh, into today. You are a Russia specialist. You've done a lot of research since well before the invasion last February on Russian technology, Russian military capabilities. I do think that, you know, now that we're, what, 10 plus months into this war, we've, we've sort of got this pretty rich data set, really, from... from um, you know, from the war and from which we can draw some conclusions. And, you know, I guess by combining it with, again, with your expertise, I'm hoping we can sort of give some color to a discussion about, you know, how and why innovation, uh, particularly as it relates to drone warfare, is or is not happening on on both sides of the war. So to start, I, you know, given your background studying Russia, I wonder if you can kind of talk about your expectations uh, when Russia initially invaded about a, how Russian forces would, you know, would seek to bring key capabilities like drones to bear on the battlefield, and B, how well they were set up to sort of adapt when they encountered challenges. I think uh, as the invasion happened, most analysts looked at two uh, broad analytical areas to define how Russia would perform in Ukraine. Number one are descriptions of Russian military drills and exercises, where a lot of new technology was used, integrated on a smaller scale. Uh, but nonetheless, it was used extensively and throughout all the Russian services, drones included. 
And number two was Russia's military performance in Syria, which uh, was a obje objectively speaking, a relatively successful limited incursion where Russia brought overwhelming force against an adversary that was not well equipped to handle a military of its kind. So Russia operated in a very permissive environment of Syria, using and testing different types of technologies. A lot of these technologies were then tested across Russia in drills and exercises around the clock. Uh, and so all of that sort of, uh, all of that preparation was supposed to uh, reinforce and essentially translate into a Russian concept of operations in Ukraine proper when they invaded. And of course, when they invaded, we saw a very different story and I won't belabor uh, the details, a lot of it has been discussed and written by my CNA colleagues, by our uh, other counterparts in the United States and all over the world. And so this was not the uh, invasion that probably many expected. And the way it unfolded raised a lot of questions. At the same time, the technology was there and the concepts were there and the lessons were there. And it's not like Russians didn't pay attention to other conflicts where advanced technology was used, like Nagorno-Karabakh. They paid a lot of attention to the use of drones and loading munitions in that specific conflict, how they, it was tied together with ground forces, uh, how older technology was used with new technology to really reinforce both. Uh, and of course, uh, Russia's military invasion of Ukraine would be based on years long presence in eastern Ukraine in support of the Donbass militias in the Donetsk and Lugansk regions. Uh, where a lot of these technologies were likewise tested and evaluated, like Russian UAVs, like Russian EW systems. So there was a lot to base expectations on in that very objective sort of look at what the Russian military was in early February of 2022. Of course, uh, as the Russian invasion got bungled, as they got stuck, as a lot of the concepts and technologies we expected to see did materialize, Questions were raised about the quality of the of, of the Russian force, whether or not um, a lot of these sort of new technologies were really as integrated as the Russians led us um, to believe, whether all these new concepts and, and uh, tactics and procedures tested in Eastern Ukraine, in Syria and drills and exercises really would translate on the mass scale into um, a modernized Russian military force that was building up prior to February 2022. And I, I think the, I guess the easiest way to describe it almost a year out is that no one really knew how a mass scale war of this kind would, would unfold. No one really knew what a uh, massive Russian military force on the offensive would look like and how it would actually perform rather. Now we knew what it would look like. Uh, we didn't know how it would actually perform. Uh, for a very extended period of time, because most of Russian preparation dealt with the defensive posture against NATO, against a possible incursion into the Russian geopolitical space, not on the offensive. And of course, the invasion exposed a lot of issues we didn't know about, such as the quality of the Russian force, the structure, the corruption, the issues that usually get exposed when a large-scale military has to fight for a very prolonged period of time. And uh, even if we suspected some of those issues existed, including um, those that involved fielding and building and testing out new technologies like UAVs, we didn't know how all of that would really unfold in a war of this size and scale in Ukraine. So fast forward now 
to early 2023. And Russian military has, in fact, fielded a lot of their unmanned aerial vehicles, excuse me, uncrewed aerial vehicles and some other autonomous systems. And they were fielded in very large numbers. And they were lost in very large numbers because of the lengthy conflict, because of Ukraine's excellent defenses, because Ukraine, too, was studying Russian military, just like the Russian military was supposed to study how Ukraine modernized and prepared for a possible conflict. And so we are seeing today a lot of UAVs still used, but we're also seeing how Russia basically adapted to the challenge that was presented by a very well prepared and well-motivated Ukrainian military, which in many ways, as you mentioned, was more flexible than the Russian military. And that is Russia turned to allies to obtain loading munitions from Iran. And Russia, like Ukraine, turned to commercial technology, like commercial quadcopters made by China's DJI, to give itself an advanced tactical edge via these uh, UAVs as intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance elements, as tactical elements, artillery spotting elements, um, combat elements, and even uh, kamikaze-style missions as well. I'm glad you mentioned the uh, the flexibility being demonstrated today by Ukrainian forces. I had the opportunity to spend some time in Ukraine on uh, on a number of visits over the past few years, and I think my first trip there was in 2017. And during that trip, I listened as a uh, a very senior Ukrainian general officer described the Ukrainian military as more Soviet than the Russians. Russian forces and and Russian leaders had had you know sort of ample opportunity to learn in Chechnya, in Georgia, uh, most recently in Syria. Ukraine didn't kind of have that sort of forcing function to change. So I think it's actually really remarkable that flexibility has become such a, uh, you know, a defining characteristic of Ukrainian forces. One of the areas that that uh, flexibility is on display is in Ukrainians' use of quadcopters. I read a very recent uh, New York Times article for which you were interviewed that described essentially a workshop where, where members of a Ukrainian tactical level unit were experimenting. Um, you know, the Ukrainian forces have used commercially available quadcopters to drop grenades, but they were specifically working on developing an explosive device, a grenade that was light enough for the, for the quadcopter to carry, but packed enough punch to take out a tank or an armored vehicle. At the same time as, you know, we're seeing quadcopters play this, this, this really critical role. There are also, you know, larger fixed wing drones playing, um, a similarly outsized role in the war. We heard a great deal about the impact uh, especially early in the war, of Turkish-made Bayraktar TB2s that uh, that Ukraine was flying. Russia has been purchasing fixed-wing drones from Iran and flying them in Ukraine more recently. So I sort of have two questions that are, are maybe somewhat related. Um, first, how should we think about that really wide span of vehicles that fit into the drone category, from quadcopters to, to these much larger fixed-wing aircraft in terms of their use in this war? And second, you know, you mentioned that that analysts developed expectations about how Russia would approach this war based on exercises that that the Russian military had held. Uh, you know, these are sort of windows into how Russia intends intends to fight. What role, you know, based on that, I guess, what role do drones have uh, in you know in that Russian way of war? Well, I, they play a very prominent role, and I think you raise a very important point about uh, a. An, a military based along Cold War lines sort of slowly uh, evolving into a more mar- modern force because of the influx and impact of new technologies and the different types of threats, right? Um, when the Georgia war was fought by Russia in 2008, 
we didn't really have commercial type quadcopters on the market. Obviously, certain conduct of war, certain military conduct, certain military operations are going to be influenced by new technologies. And starting with around 20, uh, um, 2010, 2011, when Russian military started modernizing, they placed drones and unmanned aerial vehicles front and center as part of uh, their um, intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance element. In other words, UAVs as an essential element as the eyes and ears on the battlefield. As the time went on, as the Russian forces um, fought in Syria, they were using UAVs in the reconnaissance fire, reconnaissance strike contour, where UAVs are an essential um, surveillance element for long range artillery, multiple launch rocket systems, mortar units and the like. And uh, this reconnaissance fire, reconnaissance strike contour is the main defining element today of the war in Ukraine, both by the Ukrainians who were very successful in integrating drones with their artillery strikes, as well as the Russians who are placing greater and greater emphasis on drones as the leading element, as a leading ISR and situational awareness element for their artillery and similar type forces. But again, a lot of this was made possible because the new technologies became available. And um, as DGIs became absolutely ubiquitous and widespread all over the world, it simply became easier to acquire them in great numbers and adapt them to uh, military conflict. Uh, Ukrainians and the Russians weren't the first to do that yeah, you know, after 2014. ISIS did it first uh, in, in Syria. And then we've seen commercial quadcopters take uh, a leading role in Libya in some part of the conflict. And uh, commercial quadcopters, for example, were also uh, apparently uh, playing a role in the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict as well on a limited scale. So quadcopters have become absolutely indispensable. In fact, Russian military top brass hailed DJI drone as the new symbol of modern warfare. And uh, they've said that DJI drones have elevated artillery to the levels not seen since World War I because enabling older legacy systems to operate with new technology for greater effectiveness basically turns these artillery systems into sniper rifles. In the best case scenario, this artillery system guided by drone doesn't have to expend a lot of uh, munitions and shells. It can maybe strike once or twice at a target because the target would be identified and tracked by a drone. This is what has happened in this war on both sides. Ukraine got there first. Uh, it was more prepared. It, it became more flexible. It used new technology with great effect, but eventually Russia got there as well. Uh, regarding Bayraktars and similar type of technologies, uh, Bayraktars were very successful as long as the anti-air defenses of the targeted um, you know, adversary were not well functioning. And so Bayraktars did very well against, for example, Armenian targets in the Nagorno-Karabakh war, when Armenia didn't really have very good integrated air defense. And in the initial weeks of the war uh, in Ukraine, Bayraktars did very well against Russian forces when Russians didn't really have a lot of electronic warfare, a lot of air defenses and other similar technologies in place. Once that actually happened and Russians got their air defense act together, it became very difficult for Bayraktars to operate with impunity as they've done earlier in the war. And Bayraktars were relegated to uh, a supporting ISR role where they were providing sort of reconnaissance data at a great distance to other UAVs or crude uh, aerial or, or ground elements. 
but getting back to what the UAVs mean for Russian way of war, they are absolutely an essential element, an ISR element. They are a growing combat element as well. Uh, Russia doesn't really have a lot of combat UAVs. Unlike United States or Israel or China, unlike Turkey and Iran, it has a very small roster of what we would call combat aerial vehicles. But uh, there are many plans in the works. There are many developments in the works. There's a lot of testing and evaluation of different types of UAVs that can serve in combat capacity. Some of those actually tried to serve in combat capacity early on, the four-post R and the Orion drone, but they were met with the Ukrainian air. They essentially met the uh, Ukrainians' integrated air defenses. And it became clear that those drones cannot function well against a well-positioned, well-integrated air defense systems. And so Russia's four-post and Orion drones are also relegated to ISR role right now. And so this kind of, again, takes us back to the issue of flexibility and adaptability. Uh, Ukraine adapted by learning a lot about Russian military. It, um, it made its forces a lot more flexible at the tactical level where they could be uh, more independent of the larger sort of um, hierarchy to make decisions. Um, Ukrainian units have a lot more flexibility in conducting strikes based on data from drones. But we also have to say that Russian military has adapted as well. Because once the Ministry of Defense, Russian Ministry of Defense, has recognized that it doesn't have a lot of its own UAV elements that could be uh, or that could have a, a greater impact on the war, uh, they actually turned to Iran. And Iran was able to provide Russians with that missing element in tactical and uh, operational combat capacity. That is, Russia's own drones, most of which are intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, operate at less than 100 kilometers. Russia's combat drones are not very effective and also have to um, operate as ISR elements. And so Iranian drones that can fly up to two to 300 kilometers um, are cheap, are easy to assemble, are made from commercial parts, which could be easily acquired worldwide, uh, are basically uh, that missing element that, that Russia needed to now bring pressure on Ukraine. And even if Ukraine shoots most of these uh, UAVs out of the sky, right, the Shahed 136, 131, which fly under the Russian name of Geraint 1 and Geraint 2, uh, again, it demonstrates to Ukraine that they are pressured by the Russians. They have to be on the defensive. They have to spend ammunition. They have to get their uh, air defense systems operational around the clock. This adds additional stress on the fighters, on the soldiers that have to monitor the skies. Uh, and Ukraine is very successful in shooting most of these uh, drones out of the sky because they are cheap, you know, because they are very simple, because they don't fly very high. They fly very slow. They're very loud. So at the same time, because Russia is able to launch mo most of these, it has put pressure back on, on, uh, on the Ukrainian defenses and on the Ukrainian military to come up with solutions and resources to mitigate the threat. You know, in the U.S. military, we love to talk about the .mil-PF spectrum, right? Doctrine, organization, training, material, leadership and education, personnel, and facilities. Sometimes we add policy in as well, and we get .mil-PFP. Uh, but when we talk about drones, I think it's, it's pretty natural to think of them as things in the material category, the physical vehicles. 
Um, doctrine is also obviously important. How does the force use those physical vehicles? But some of the things that we're talking about now are, you know, really about about organization. In that regard, I think there are two sort of hallmarks of of Ukraine's war effort that that are really important. Um, the first is something we've already touched on. You know, tactical drone units and and really a willingness to accept some risk by by pushing down the authority to experiment, to tinker with quadcopters, to test out new tactics, things like that. The second, you know, is is what I think I would describe as is is the integration of military capability, development and procurement, uh, and Ukrainian society. You know, many of our listeners will be familiar with what happened in in Ukraine uh, when the Maidan protest toppled the government of Viktor Yanukovych. Um, that's when Russia seized the opportunity to get involved in Crimea, in the Donbass, in the East. Um, you know, there was very little coordinated military response from Ukraine uh, at that time. You talk to different people and you'll get different answers as to, you know, as to whether Ukrainian forces simply were not sent uh, or whether, you know, I guess the political instability meant that there was no real command and control structure in place to send them. But the upshot is that a lot of the fighting initially was done by, by volunteers. They didn't have access to, um, obviously, established logistics systems. So when they needed helmets and body armor and and night vision capabilities was a big one, they called back to friends and family in Kiev or Lviv or Odessa or wherever, and you know they would literally go online and and try to buy this stuff for them. As the you know as the Ukrainian armed forces gradually you know, took over the war effort and they absorbed some of these volunteer units, these kind of networks that had been providing support remained intact and and evolved into you know a really rich landscape of NGOs that are deeply connected to the military and to the government which you know it creates this foundation for for a very agile and dynamic um sort of comprehensive defensive organization you know of course allowing certain functions like buying equipment and sending it to the front for example um allowing those functions to take place outside of of, of formal systems and processes also involves an acceptance of, of, of risk to some degree. So if we take those two organizational features that we see on the Ukrainian side, you know, first empowered tactical innovation and second an in, in, in integrated sort of whole of nation, whole of society effort. How do those compare to what we see on the Russian side? Well, I think you raise a very important point. And obviously we, we can read a lot about Ukraine's very successful integration of volunteer efforts, of volunteer experience, military experience, um, how that gels together well on the front. Um, I think Russian military today is still very much a, a top-bottom structure. Uh, it's still uh, very much a very hierarchical um, structure where it isn't always easy to implement solutions which work at the front at the very tactical level. Um, and sort of uh, make sure that the entire military structure is aware of the impact and influence of this technology of, or, or of new tactics and, and systems. Uh, I keep coming back to Telegram and as, as a way to sort of gauge um, the, uh, the level of attention to specific things. And a lot of what you raised, a lot of it was actually discussed on those Telegram channels early on and a lot of attention on Russian language telegram channels, those that eventually became pro-Kremlin, uh, was actually uh, on this Ukrainian ability to integrate new technologies and sort of create this parallel horizontal structure rather than 
reestablish a vertical hierarchical structure, which is very much present across the Russian military. With so much information about the war basically playing out on social media, it became impossible to hide a lot of deficiencies and problems across the Russian military. And so some of these solutions, which were implemented by volunteers uh, or by soldiers themselves, are finally making their way sort of up the food chain, slowly but surely. Um, and the MOD is this very large hierarchical bureaucratic machine is slowly turning around to the idea that uh, it has to go back to some of the lessons learned before the war started, to the technologies tested before the war, um, or, or rather this invasion has, has begun, and uh, to incorporate and include the experience by volunteers, technologies developed by volunteers, or by soldiers themselves uh, into the official concept of operations. And so, for example, uh, there's a lot of training taking place across the Russian military on piloting quadcopters as, a, as an essential, essential um, combat element right now. And this training is conducted across the Russian regions. It's conducted within the military itself. It's conducted at um, civilian centers, but it's not exactly clear uh, for example, if this training is standardized, if everyone is using the same type of a training manual to uh, learn how to operate a quadcopter in combat uh, and uh, how to use it with uh, different forces. Uh, but uh, a lot of Russian volunteers actually were talking about establishing this type of a common training concept for quadcopter operations and distributing that and populating that concept across the Russian military so that the MOD can train thousands and thousands of UAV operators uh, and integrate these technologies across its combined arms formations in Ukraine. And it was, the, it was the volunteers that really pushed this. It became impossible to sort of hide from the fact that these technologies, these very simple DJI quadcopters are absolutely essential. So we have this very interesting bottom-up effort which uh, is met by the Russian bureaucracy. And the question is whether Russian bureaucracy, which already understands, for example, the significance and the importance of using commercial quadcopters, whether this bureaucracy would be able to get out of its own way and integrate a lot of these solutions quickly and efficiently. But there are hints that that's probably not going to happen fast enough, which is why we have efforts like um, Evgeny Prigozhin's and his Wagner private military corporation holding their own hackathons, holding um, and uh, implementing their own uh, information communication developments for its forces, designing and developing their own quadcopters. Why we have former top level bureaucrats like Dmitry Ragozin, who used to head Roscosmos, also saying that he has a separate effort where he's going to speed up the delivery and the development of UAVs to the forces in the Donbass, presumably bypassing the Russian bureaucracy, which is why we recently had President Putin go on the record, I think just a few days ago, signing a law that is supposed to make it uh, easier to acquire military technologies for the war effort, to speed up this whole acquisition cycle so that new technologies, new concepts can actually make it to the soldiers where they're most needed. But we also have to consider the fact that uh, Russia is fielding a massive force. It is unevenly e equipped. It is unevenly matched against the Ukrainians. Some parts of this vast 
Russian military machine are better equipped than others. They are faster at integrating some of these new technologies than other forces, right? We have the uh, Russian military, we have the Rosgvardia, we have the Wagner PMC, which is fighting in Bakhmut right now. We have um, formations from Donetsk and Lugansk, which are also fielding their own forces and they're also fielding their own technology. So we have a lot of these efforts which don't always gel together. And that is not what we're seeing on the Ukrainian side. On the, on the Ukrainian side, we're seeing a lot better integrated process where different units, different formations can uh, gain access to new technology in a much quicker and efficient manner. Now, again, we talk about Russian MOD's flexibility and adaptability in this war. And I think the use of Shahads, uh, this loitering munitions um, against Ukraine is an example of that adaptability, a recognition that domestic solutions are not enough. And they need to go outside of the box, literally and figuratively, and go to one, one of their remaining allies and acquire technology that has already proven itself in previous conflicts and engagements. And so Russia's uh, use of Shahed-136 and 131 drones, which are very cheap by comparison to many air defense systems that Ukraine is fielding, is an example of that adaptability and flexibility that is still there and that the Russian military will probably build on in 2023 as the fighting continues. You know, the, the war is much more static now than at any point since the invasion. To what degree is that? Is that a function of, you know, and obviously it isn't the sole explanatory factor. It's far from it. But how much is that a result in part from, from innovation, specifically with respect to drones, you know, improving the integration of, of, of drone reconnaissance and artillery fire might encourage, uh, you know, the, the other side to, to establish more hardened defensive positions, which means less maneuver. That's more static. Um, or, you know, if, if innovation enhances capabilities, which it should, that's what it's meant to do. If it does so specifically on the Ukrainian side, uh, for instance, that arguably makes for a longer war than, you know, than certainly than, than I think Russia expected. And that's much easier to sustain with consolidated front lines and, and, and secure rear areas. So is there a link there? And if so, you know, sort of projecting forward, do you think that further innovation... You know, the integration of new platforms and systems, the evolution of tactics. Do you think that's more likely to ultimately lend sufficient advantage to, to one side or the other and, and kind of break the pattern of increasingly static fighting? Or, you know, or will it further feed into what we've been seeing and, and reinforce that pattern? And, you know, several months from now or, or, or maybe even longer, we're seeing a war that is perhaps even more static. It's possible. It's possible by um, by withdrawing from uh, Kherson, Russia bought itself some time to not only uh, make sure its forces are better trained and better trained for the conflict that lies ahead, but also um, they have the essentially the ability to start integrating the tactics and the concepts that were developed over the past 10 months. Uh, I don't know uh, to the extent where this war is going to continue to remain static. Again, I think either side is looking for a breakthrough because this type of static warfare is going to grind and impact the um, economies and the societies of both countries to a very significant extent. What we are seeing, actually, and uh, you have uh, brought up a very important point earlier, 
is that this has mobilized societies on both sides. And Russian society has been mobilized as well. Telegram, as a uh, social media platform, has enabled uh, volunteers and specific units to raise technology and equipment that they need the most. And so Russian volunteers can donate to a very specific cause. They can donate money to the, that very specific quadcopter purchase, for example, uh, or for purchasing a very specific type of equipment for specific units. And so it has really brought home to the regular Russian people who can now support the war effort. And um, the society has, in fact, responded. A lot of um, money has been raised. A lot of equipment has been purchased and donated to the Russian forces. Obviously, a military that goes on a large-scale war is supposed to provide equipment and weapons for all of its forces. The fact that you have regular babushka somewhere, some, some granny uh, donating most of its, her, her pension to purchase um, equipment for a Russian unit doesn't, doesn't make MOD look good at all. But uh, MOD doesn't seem to mind. The military doesn't seem to mind that there is a very extensive volunteer effort, which is providing a lot of equipment that the, that the military itself, for some reason or another, was unable to provide. And so there's this massive volunteer effort, which is uh, feeding a lot of um, equipment to the front, to specific units, to specific formations, anything from medicine to foodstuffs to quadcopters to very specific quadcopters, because there are lists of which quadcopters are needed, for example. And people can purchase a quadcopter for the Russian military, or they can donate money to that very specific DJI Mavic 2, 3, Mavic Air, or 30T, or, or Mavic Ma or, um, or DJI Matrix. In other words, uh, people can, um, can pick and choose how they want to support this war effort. And some of these volunteer efforts have morphed into very sizable organizations into very sizable nonprofits, which raise a lot of money and donate uh, significant amounts of equipment to the front on a regular basis. Uh, one such organization is Vecha. And uh, Vecha itself has donated, I think, over a thousand quadcopters to the front in 2022, along with tons and tons of other equipment and supplies that are most needed for the Russian military. And so that bottom-up effort, that volunteer-based effort, still exists. Uh, and it is going to grow, I think, in 2023, as the need to continue equipping and supporting a Russian military and the newly mobilized force is going to remain constant for at least the next uh, six months or so. And so these volunteers are now purchasing and giving very specific type of advanced technologies, which are um, most in need at the tactical level. And what Telegram has been, um, what it has enabled is that it has enabled this direct communication between the warfighters, between specific units and the volunteers and the civilian populations. In other words, there can be a direct communication. Some of these Telegram posts actually have a bank card where you can transfer money and um, those funds are going to go to purchase very specific types of equipments and weapons, including quadcopters. We keep coming back to, quad, um, to the quadcopters because that has become the single most visible element of this war. 
and as a new sort of symbol of modern warfare. Uh, it has become absolutely indispensable for both sides in providing their forces with a tactical advantage. I keep uh, quoting this uh, quote from um, spring 2022 when a Russian soldier was quoted in a regional Russian paper saying that they are basically blind as kittens at the front because they don't have enough quadcopters. They can't see what is happening just a few miles out or beyond the forest or beyond the hill. And Ukraine has the, uh, they have those tactical uh, quadcopters. They have units which can base their, um, their decisions to attack based on the information that they um, get from a quadcopter. Well, to um, to wrap up, I want to I want to come back to something you said in that uh, in that New York Times article that that I mentioned earlier. Again, it, it described a tactical unit, you know, working on developing anti-armor grenades uh, that could be dropped from quadcopters. The article quotes you. Um, you described it as as a lot of back and forth. I think the specific quote you said, you know, one side has a tech breakthrough and and the other side catches up, which sounds a, a, you know a little bit like an arms race, at least in a sense. If what we're seeing with respect to drones and innovation, does have some of those qualities of uh, of an arms race? How do you anticipate that that will kind of play out? What are the you know specifically what are the technologies, the capabilities, the tactics, uh, the development of which will sort of shape the war going forward? Well, I, I think um, Ukraine recognized the danger of uh, of being on the receiving end of uh, Russia's continued attacks by um by loading munitions and so towards the end of 2022 for example ukraine announced that it is working on long-range drones that can also strike russia so ukraine has demonstrated the capacity and the willingness to build new technologies that can actually take the war to russian territory as opposed to just a ukraine uh continuing to defend itself against russian drone attacks so i think that could be a defining feature of this year as uh as as Ukrainian defense sector as its volunteers are coming up with new solutions that can potentially target Russian territory and really raise this conflict on a whole new level if Russia now has to be on the on the receiving end of multiple Ukrainian attacks against its um, its defense sector its industries and its own infrastructure I think when it comes to tactical technologies like commercial quadcopters. This year, Ukraine is going to build on its previous experience and integrate new technologies and solutions that were 10 months in the making. And so the article that you mentioned is actually building on Ukraine's past experience, probably even going um, before February 2022 in building specific type of munitions that can create the most impact. And so a lot of Ukrainian um, technologies that could be fielded this year are going to be built on its own strengths and vulnerabilities to take the war to Russia um, in ways that haven't been done before. On the Russian side, what we're seeing right now is the defense industry finally slowly turning around to meet the technological challenge. So there are talks about Russia manufacturing the Shahed 136 and 131 drones in Russia in very large numbers. That, that was actually discussed in the summer of 2022 uh, but according to the U.S. intelligence estimates, that can actually start happening this year as Russia starts building these drones in large numbers. And Russian defense industry is also indicated that it too can provide a lot of tactical quadcopter solutions for the front. Uh, 
the Russian defense industry recognizes that it cannot replace China-made DJI drones, or even uh, it recognizes that it can be free completely of Chinese components, microelectronics and the likes for UAVs, for example, but it can build on these components and uh, create and design something that is uniquely Russian. And so there are major defense conglomerates which are announcing the uh, start of um, quadcopter manufacturing on a large scale. There are also Russian regions which are establishing UAV manufacturing centers so that they too can deliver those uh, to the front. Uh, there are other efforts across the country which are supposed to speed up the development and delivery of these needed technologies to the front, including quadcopters. So 2023 is going to be a very interesting year where we can see whether or not promises to um, uh, replace DJI dependence uh, or lessen DJI dependence one way or another are actually going to ring true. And so the quote that you, um, that you spoke about basically talks about this a technology race as indeed one side comes up with solutions, for example, to make the drones more lethal, to make them uh, more impervious to electronic warfare or any other countermeasures. The other side has to catch up and really kind of take those lessons in and see whether or not they could be applicable. It took a long time for the Russian military to recognize that, okay, it really does need tons and tons of quadcopters at the front. Whether or not the military is going to provide that needed technology to the front in needed numbers is an open question. It is not an open question for Ukraine. Ukrainian volunteers and the military are providing needed technology to the forces at the very front. And they're doing it in a way that is more flexible and more successful than the Russian counterparts, at least at this point in the war. Well, I think that's a um, it's a really useful framework for listeners as as we all continue to to watch this war evolve uh, as it has been doing since uh, since the invasion. It's also a great place to stop. So, Sam, I want to thank you again for joining me for uh, for a really interesting conversation. Thank you. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing before you go. If you aren't following MWI on social media, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. Thanks again. Mm-hmm.